Good morning, everyone. And try that again. And it is good to see everybody. We are on the march towards Christmas, 19 days and counting. Anybody do a countdown at home? Children? Man, we're all jaded, huh? Well, I don't know, but uh, for me, I know I feel like as soon as December hits, it just feels like everything kind of just accelerates uh, towards Christmas because there's so much uh, just happening. And um, I, I don't, I'm one of those people, I love the Christmas season. I like that uh, decorations are up, and I like that as I drive around, I see more and more lights on houses. Uh, I love that aspect of Christmas. The music has begun. Did anybody start pre-Thanksgiving listening to Christmas music? Okay, well, you're in the wrong. Um, I'll pray for you. It has its season, and it's post-Thanksgiving, but I like that the Christmas songs are flowing in in our house. Um, Presents have been ordered probably at this point most of us on our first name basis with the Amazon delivery people. Uh, it's just the Christmas, uh, it's the Christmas season and I know I'm excited about it because there's just so many great things that we all pack into this last month of the year including you know we uh, uh, students get a break from school, um, people get time off of work, we, we see families, we exchange gifts, we um, have specific food that comes out just at Christmas. It's, it's a wonderful season, and I'm excited uh, about uh, Christmas 2020 and partaking in all those different elements that make up our, our holiday season um, culturally and, and definitely as believers. Um, but um, you probably recognize it, so I'm just going to state it because we're all on the same page page, when it comes to uh, the church, there's actually always this tension around Christmas because um, we all know the story already. You know, we've uh, seen Charlie Bound Christmas about 35 times, and uh, we probably know most of that passage in Luke that lays out the birth of Jesus. And so it's a wonderful thing, and I'm glad it's built into our rhythms year after year to remember Jesus coming to earth. But part of the struggle on the church side of things is, like, since we know all the story, we know all these things, and also there's this incredible busyness around the season, like, how can we convey as pastors? as the church collectively get around, like, we know all of the good things that happen in this Christmas season, but how can we remind ourselves that it is always far bigger and far greater than all of those regular traditions? Like, it gets lost on us over and over again, um, I think, just through repetition that, like, God of the universe came in human form and lived on this earth. Like, how can we uh, remember that and, and feel the weight and the significance in our lives as we are uh, frantically trying to get everything wrapped and to arrange all the plans and make it to every party and gathering? How can we uh, keep that in front of us? So for us as a church, we're just going to beat the same drum the next three weeks, God with us. And it's the, one of those phrases that makes its way into Christmas in church a lot because it is so significant. And we see that from um, the birth of Jesus, that that was one of the names given to him, Emmanuel, which means God with us, which has so much loaded significance. So how can we remember and orient our lives towards that reality? We're going to do our best over the month of December, and I hope you join with us and making sure we keep that in front of us. 
Um, so if you remember back in your world history class, some point in high school, you probably covered the Enlightenment, which had a significant impact in Europe of just all these new ways of thinking and lots of incredible uh, ideas came out of it, including like the scientific method and all these different things. It was kind of this um, pinnacle of, of human achievement at the time and, and brought forth these new ideas. And so one of, one of the aspects of that in regards to religion was to uh, a movement away from uh, the Christian understanding of God and more towards this movement called deism, which had a big impact. 1700s, it influenced a lot of the thinkers that uh, came over to America and helped establish America. So some um, prominent uh, founding fathers would have fallen into this camp of, of deist, uh, including, if you remember, Thomas Paine, who wrote Common Sense, which had a big influence leading up to American Revolution. Benjamin Franklin would have fallen into this camp. And it was this idea, it wasn't atheism, it was deism, it was this idea that there is um, a God per se. There is this higher power that has um, established reality. Um, but one of the analogies that was used a lot in this idea is that God is more like a watchmaker. Uh, so um, we can look at the natural world and understand that there is an order to it. There is a way it works. There is a natural law. Um, consistencies, things, you know, it's not just all chaos. And so an inference from that is that if there is a natural law, there is a lawgiver. But their premise was more to the effect that um, there is some form of power or God who uh, wound everything up, put all the gears in place, set things in motion, but then step back and just let it happen. And so the deist would have contended that um, God is not personable or knowable, that it's just this external force that um, set things in motion, but is no longer present in the affairs of man. And that's what the deist believed in and I'm just going to assume, because uh, all of you are churchgoers, because you're at a church this morning, and not only that, you're at a, a Bible church, which has a, a, um, a falls within a tradition of belief, that we would know on probably like a, a Sunday school level that the idea that God is distant and absent from his creation is not something that we would believe here as this church. But part of my question this morning for most of us is, although at, at an intellectual head level, we know that God is not distant, how many of us live our lives like he is present and active daily? Because here, here's one of the things I know, and I think it goes back to probably um, um, many of us, either uh, our, our families taught us, or maybe even the churches we were a part of taught us, or experiences taught us. If somebody was to ask you, um, what is the point of Christianity? One of the answers we might get fairly commonly, and we might fall into ourselves, is that the point of Christianity is to be a good person. And let me just tell you, that's not the point of Christianity. I, I think that is one of the results of Christianity, but is not the point of Christianity. And so we're going to go down to some base level understanding this morning, because if we confuse the point and the results, it's going to limit our understanding uh, of our God that we claim to worship, that we put in the forefront of our lives. So I, like I said, I do think being a good person, it's one of the results of following Jesus. And so I think about what it says in Galatians 6. It has this list of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, the things that happen in our lives when we follow God. Uh, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't know about you. I can't list some of the fruits of the Spirit. I feel this compulsion to always list all of them if you begin that list. Um, and if you've ever sang the song at a youth camp, you know what I'm saying. Um, but I love that at the end of that list it says, against such things there is no law. 
because we can recognize those are attributes of a good person. We, everybody can agree those are like noble character traits. And so sometimes it's easy to get confused, um, uh, the point versus the result. But the point of, be, of being a Christian, of following Jesus, the, the reality of that is, is not to be a good person. That's not the point of our faith. And that leads to an even, even deeper question about the nature of our existence and um, why we're here. You should ask yourself at some point, um, why did God create us? Because the why behind the creation is going to inform the point of all of us following God and us digging into the Bible and doing all these things in a religious setting. Why did God create us? And I would say this, God created us to be with us. And if we don't get that question right, then all of the other things that are supposed to follow that are going to be out of line. But God created to be with his creation. And so that's why we are going to beat this drum over and over for the next three weeks. God with us. That is the story of the Bible. That is the story of your life. That is the story of my life is God with us us. That is in the Old Testament before sin entered into the world. That continues on after sin enters the world. That is the story of the New Testament with Jesus coming. And that is the story of our future when all things will be restored. It is God with us. And so the point this morning that we want to think about is not that um, the Bible is calling us to be a good person. It is that God, in his infinite wisdom and joy and glory, uh, created us out of an overflow within himself, and he created us to know him and to be known. And so that is the point of our faith, to know the creator that created us, God with us. Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about um, this morning of God being with us. And we're going to walk through that in three different ways over these next couple weeks. And so uh, this morning, I'm going to nerd out with you all a little bit about the Old Testament. And I'm honestly, I'm really excited uh, to dig into some, um, uh, some stories and to think about how God has continued to interject himself in history over and over again so that people can look at their experience and see what God has done. And men and women throughout history have been able to say, God, was with us in this time. And so I love that it even kicks off really early in the Bible in Genesis 3, which if you know anything about the first couple of chapters of Genesis, Genesis 3 is where it all goes wrong. So Genesis 3 is what we would call the fall. It's when Adam and Eve, uh, they pick the fruit, they sin. Uh, I see, man, y'all are trained really well. We're not actually going to hang out in Genesis 3. You can go to Genesis 16 if you, if you really um, have a need to open the Bible at this point. Go to Genesis 16. We're going to spend more time there. But in Genesis 3, right um, um, before the fall, it says that God is actually walking in the garden in the heat of the day. And so when creation occurs and God speaks everything into motion and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, we see already implicit in God's word that he put them there so that he could be with them. There was this intimacy that was known between God and his creation because that is why God created us to be with us. But then the fall does happen. Sin does enter into the world and it fractures this level of intimacy, this face-to-face -face knowledge we have with our creator. And in the rest of the story of the Bible is this one of redemption of God continuing to work in the mess and the brokenness of this world and, and setting us on this trajectory to all things being restored 
restored in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at some of these moments throughout the Old Testament where although sin has entered in, uh, God continues to interject himself in the lives of people and to make himself known to them. So um, we're going to look at Genesis 16 um, first, but we're going to look at some other ones as well. Uh, this is a really phenomenal story. Uh, we're going to uh, start in verse 7, but let me give some context. You've probably heard of a guy named Abraham um, because he had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Um, but... Um, like every character in the Bible, um, all of them are flawed, uh, broken people who um, do good things and bad things, because this is not a, a story of really great people. This is a story of a really great God. And so Abraham, um, God had called him out, and him and his wife Sarah um, were wealthy people, and an aspect of that is that they had servants and slaves. And uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was unable to have children— uh, as um, um, what she decided to do to take matters into her own hands was to take her servant, who had zero options, um, and give that servant to her husband and say, hey, have a baby with her because I'm unable to have children. Uh, so it's a lady named Hagar. And so then it goes even worse for Hagar. She does what she's told to do by her mistress, by Sarah, um, and she does get pregnant, and that makes Sarah resent her mightily because it just puts into contrast that she cannot um, have a baby. And so Sarah goes to her husband and so says, like, look, you uh, got my servant pregnant, and Abraham washes his hands of it, uh, which is not something I would say is very commendable, but he says, hey, do with her whatever you want. And so Sarah begins to mistreat Hagar, even though it was her idea in the first place. And so, so bad uh, for this lady Hagar that she runs away uh, from Abraham and Sarah. And that's what we're going to pick up um, is in verse 7. And so she is pregnant and alone. Verse 7 says this, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahailar. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. We're going to stop there. Um, so a really interesting thing occurs in this passage and begins to occur in a lot of different places in the Old Testament. I'm going to reference uh, a, a couple of them. Um, and so it says she's in the wilderness. Then if you notice, uh, verse 7, it started off, it says, the angel of the Lord found her. And so this Hebrew word that we translate angel, the direct translation of it is um, really messenger. It's malak in uh, the Hebrew, and it's malak. 
symbolic Yahweh, so it is the messenger of Yahweh. So Yahweh is the covenant name of God that God gave for himself to the um, Israelite people. And so if you're reading your Old Testament, um, if you see the English word God, it, it probably in the Hebrew is Elohim, which is another old word for God. Um, but if you see Lord in all caps... That's usually how we translate the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the name God gave for himself um, uh, to, the, uh, to Israel. And so a very interesting thing occurred, if you might have noticed, um, verse 7, it says, the messenger of Yahweh found her. And so they begin to have this interaction. Um, and then in ver- if you look in verse 11, it says, and then you know, the messenger of Yahweh said to her, um, hold on, I'm sorry, verse 10, uh, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. So it is saying the messenger of Yahweh, but then it's, he speaks in the first person and says, I am going to grant life to you through your child. And then if you get down to, through that interaction, verse 13, it says, So she called the name of the Lord, so she called the name of Yahweh, who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. And so this um, begins to kick off this uh, appearance that happens all through the Old Testament that if you look through these different stories, most often it's translated the angel of the Lord because that's how we translate that word uh, messenger. It typically means an angel. But there's um, all of these instances Um, where uh, this occurs, some type of figure appears to a person, and it says angel of the Lord, but within these interactions, uh, this figure begins to communicate in the first person from God himself. And so um, if you know the story of Jacob in Genesis 32, 30, Jacob, who is also one of the patriarchs of Israel, it says he was alone at night, and a man appeared, and they had this wrestling match. They contended against each other all night long. Um, And then Jacob grasped onto the man and said, I'm not going to let you leave till you bless me. And so then in verse uh, 30 of Genesis 32, it says, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Um, So this is all leading to somewhere. Um, Who has seen the prince of Egypt? Awesome. Uh, Go to Exodus chapter 3 for me. Because uh, this one is fascinating to me. Uh, so in Exodus 3 is when Moses goes to the burning bush, which is a, a, you know, a common Bible story we're all familiar with. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to highlight one verse, but I kind of want to read it all at this point. Um, starting um, verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, Here this person appears again, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had uh, turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look 
at God. So did y'all see that transition? So it starts off where it says, um, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared. And then verse 3, Moses said he's going to turn aside. Um, Verse 4, it says, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside, and then it says, God called to him out of the bush. So this really unique thing happens in the language where it says, the messenger of Yahweh appeared, and then when the Lord Yahweh saw that Moses had turned aside, then God Elohim called out to him from the bush. So I don't know about you. To me, that's fascinating that you get this transition, that there is um, a God making an appearance, but there are some distinctions drawn from other times where it just says God. So it is saying the messenger of God, then Yahweh, then a word for God, all present. And then what does Moses say in verse 6? He says, um, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So it started with this figure appearing, saying the angel of the Lord, and then it ends with somebody saying they have seen God. Um, Joshua, before um, the Israelites fought the battle of Jericho, is out by himself at night, and it says a figure appeared, and it says it is the commander of the armies of the Lord. And this is what it says in Joshua 5.14. He says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worship and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua sees this figure. The figure reveals who he is and Joshua falls down in worship. And if you uh, know you're, you're teaching about angels who are servants of the Most High God, they do not allow themselves to be worshipped because worship is to be reserved for God alone. And also in this is- instance, this figure that says the commander of the armies of the Lord, he he also tells Joshua to take off his sandals for the place he is standing is holy ground, just like God said to Moses when he was around the burning bush. And so um, you can see that all of um, these stories, and there's so many of them in Judges, Gideon has a similar encounter. If you think about uh, the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they go into the fiery furnace, when the king looks in, it says there was a fourth one who appeared like the son of God with them. All throughout the Old Testament, there were these encounters that people are having, and there's this uh, really unique thing occurring where it says it is both Yahweh, but there is also, there are these distinctions because it comes on as the messenger of Yahweh first. And so um, I'm going to give you the really fancy word that theologians have for this, where God makes a physical appearance in the Old Testament. It's called a theophany. And what that just means is God shows up visibly. God meets with people. People encounter God. It's a pretty incredible thing when you think about it, that God literally shows up. I remember um, when I was in the Philippines, got a chance to do a semester-long mission trip. I think uh, just because we've probably all grown up in the Bible Belt. We get kind of inoculated to um, the crazy things that the Bible says. But I remember doing this uh, Bible, um, Bible study one day with this young lady, and it was through translation, and we were reading this story, and it was in the book of Acts, and it starts out with, like, um, God told this person. And she's like, wait, wait, wait. You mean, like, God just spoke to them? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, that's crazy. I'm like, that is crazy. Because, and I feel like we get so used to it. And then later in the story, it's like God took them up from there, put, um, put them in a different place. She's like, wait, 
wait, God just like sucked him up? I'm like, I know, right? Because I feel like, you know, we've just heard these stories so many times. We get kind of inoculated to it. But what's happening is like the God who spoke um, um, reality into existence, people are encountering him face to face on a certain level. In um, all of these stories... When we take them with the New Testament, they inform um, this really big view of the God we serve because we want to know him. That's what we were made. We have this curiosity. And so throughout history, um, as Christians have kind of wrestled with the nature of God, um, this term that's come out of that is this um, that we call um, a a Trinitarian view of God because we get all these different pictures and images of God. And so we believe God has been eternally preexistent and he is both unique and unified. He is one God, but existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so, so often, you know, around Christmas and definitely Easter, we focus on uh, Jesus, uh, the second person of the Trinity, um, God the Son. But what we completely believe from the teachings of Scripture is that uh, Jesus uh, did not get created at Christmas, He has been eternally preexistent with the Father. Um, You know, the New Testament tells us that all things were created through him and for him, and so he is active in the work of creation. I love the way that um, John describes Jesus. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. So he associates this action with with Jesus as being this um, speech that has gone out from God. So some other very unique things happen in the New Testament. One, uh, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, uh, Colossians 1, 15, um, in talking about Jesus, says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then Jesus himself says a really interesting thing in, uh, at the end of John chapter 6 when he's uh, talking about his relationship with the Father. Jesus says this in verse 46. says, Not that anyone has seen the Father... Except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. So Jesus was sent out from God the Father, and now he's saying that nobody has seen God the Father. And so, you know, there's a bit of mystery about what's happening in these Old Testament interactions. And there's some people that view this differently. Uh, But honestly, as I read these interactions and take Old Testament and New Testament, one of the most incredible things I think is happening is that people throughout history have encountered Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, before the incarnation. That the plan from the beginning has been God with us and people in different times and seasons and places when they have encountered God, they've met Jesus before he came in the fullness of time and took on human flesh. He has still been at work showing that the whole point of history, even though it's marching through this time, it's leading to the incarnation, it's heading towards the resurrection, we're heading towards the consummation of all things when we're going to be united face to face once again, Jesus has still been making appearances and showing people who he is because God created us to be with us. And that is a significant, significant truth that we need to get our heads around. I want to go back to the story of Hagar because there's, like I said, there's so many of these um, uh, different incredible uh, instances where God makes an appearance. You know, you just think about the book of Exodus and the way God meets with Moses on the mountain, the way God shows up as a, uh, a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead Israel. God has shown up in so many different incredible ways. Uh, but there's some things I, I really like 
about this specific story um, with Hagar. One is, um, I, I really like where God shows up. And it seems these, these instances, uh, these different stories, uh, there's, there's a common uh, theme that oftentimes God shows up in the wilderness, and so as I think about, you know, as, if, as you know the trajectory of Israel, there comes a time where they build the tabernacle, and that's where the presence of God's going to be. Um, and it, there's going to be priests that administer the, um, the ability for the nation of Israel to come close to the presence of God. And there's a lot of formality attached to it because uh, God was showing his holiness and instructing um, um, the people about who he is. But there's so many times um, God makes his presence known in the wilderness, that there, there isn't this formality, there's not this temple setting, there's not this grandeur to it, that God comes to be with people in the mess, in the brokenness of life, in all of life's situations. This is not an ideal setting, but God shows up. And that's one of the things I like about this story. Um, the second thing I like about it is who God shows up to. Um, I think one of the reasons within church is that that we so often have this disconnect between what our head knows but what our heart believes. And so I think, like, I, I don't think I've introduced too much new this morning, the idea of God with us, the God um, desires to be with his people. I think that is probably an intellectual thing we assent to. But I think where the disconnect happens and where we don't actually live our lives like that's true is because we think it might be true for somebody else, but we don't think we're worthy of God showing up for us. Uh, a couple of years ago, me and uh, my wife, we got the chance to uh, travel around Italy. It was a, it was a really in, incredible time. You know, got to see all the, the big things, you know, the Colosseum, Pisa, those different things. But at one point, we were in um, uh, the Amalfi Coast, and we had kind of budgeted, we were going to have like two big meals in Italy, you know, kind of go all out, not worry too much about how much it cost. And so one of them was going to occur while we were uh, in Amalfi. And so we, Emily had found this restaurant online. And so we, were, we had it scheduled. We had a reservation to go to this restaurant um, that was in this hotel. So it took us a while, but we finally found this restaurant. We walked around like um, all day trying to find it. And it was this really like boutique, swanky hotel right on the coast. And so we, we finally found it, and it's like this secret gated entrance, and we're like kind of creeping in, wondering if we're in the right place. And then we um, come to the door, and it looks just super nice, and so somebody greets us, and we're like, uh, is this this restaurant? And they're like, yes, please come in. And, um, and then so we go through this hotel, and I'm just looking around like, this place is really nice. Um, and so we go and we take this elevator to the next uh, um, story, and that's the restaurant floor, and there's just... Um, all of the staff is dressed way nicer than me, and so they lead us in, and it's this beautiful balcony just like overlooking the coast, uh, the Amalfi Coast, which was just um, incredible. And it was about that time as we're walking into the restaurant where I start to feel very uncomfortable. And so uh, we get in, and we get kind of taken to this table, and we're sitting down, and the first thing the waiter does, and me and Emily are kind of like giving, looking at each other, kind of looking around this place, and they bring out a water menu, and I open it up, and it's like the bottle of water is 18 euros. And I'm like, uh-oh. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we were trying to have two meals where we weren't too concerned about the cost, but that one threw me off. 
And me and Emily were both looking at each other, and she had looked it up online. She's like, I don't think it was too crazy. Um, but I start to feel really, really uncomfortable. And then I'm also looking around, and uh, probably everybody else in there is, um, and I, I don't mean this as like an age judgment, but in their 50s. And what I mean by that is like everybody looked pretty established in life. You know, and I was rolling in with my shorts and my wrinkly shirt and started to feel really uncomfortable. Um, and so we were trying to debate on if we are going to bail out of this place or if we're going to let this play out. And so we're kind of like muttering under our breath and not sure what to do and like, hey, there's one bottle of water that's nine euros. Maybe we can swing this. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, the manager walks up and says, I'm sorry, there's been a mistake. I'm like, you're right. We don't belong here. <laughs> um, and she was like, oh, no, we, um, we put y'all at the wrong table. Here, there's this nicer table over by, with a better view. Please follow me to this nicer table. I was like, oh, we're committed now. So they walk us over, um, like, right, no view obstructing the Amalfi Coast and sit us at this great table. And I'm like, oh. Um, so we just start getting into it. And so they have, like, the option of a tasting menu where the chef just brings out whatever they're feeling that day. And we're like, we're just going to get this one entree. Um, and we're like, we just want water. Um, um, and so we start having this meal, and it's one of the best meals I've ever had in my life, but the whole time I keep getting worried about what's going to happen on the check. And so we, we go through this meal, and they're like, hey, do you sure you don't want anything else? Do you want this bottle of wine? We're like, no, just water, just what we had. And like meals wrapping up, they're like, oh, do you want to see our dessert menu? Like, oh, uh, no thanks, you know, we're, we're good, we're super full. And um, so then at one point, they just like pull out this chocolate cart, which I didn't know was a thing. But they're like, hey, we, um, our chocolatier just sent these over for you. And so they like cut up some things and some pastries and gave them to us. I was like, oh, okay, that's going to end up on the bill. Um, and so I was just sweating it. You know, it was, it was a delicious meal, but I was just sweating it. And I was like, and they kept bringing us all these extra things, even though we said no to all of them. And uh, so finally, like um, the, the bill had come. And I just wondered, like, oh, man, what's going to be on it? Uh, but none of those extra things were on it. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I, I paid, and, you know, we're getting up, we're getting out of there. And we go, we go to the, the, the elevator, and we go down to that next floor. And when the door opens, there's another employee. And they're like, hey, would you mind waiting here just one moment? Um, one, of, one of our staff wants to speak to you. I was like, great, my card got rejected. <laughs> and so we're just standing there in this lobby, um, and uh, one of the restaurant staff comes down, and they have a bag. They're like, hey, we just wanted to give you a gift. Thank you so much for coming to our restaurant. Here's some of our, um, our, um, our olive oil that we make here, you know. And I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> and we've, we've reflected on it that um, it was like one of the most incredible meals and one of the most incredible settings, and I couldn't enjoy any of it because I felt like I didn't belong. And I feel like that happens to us all the time in church. We have all been offered this incredible gift that the God who controls the universe wants to meet with us individually, one-on-one, -on -one, and we just can't even believe it because we feel like we don't belong. That there is something in our past or there is something about us or something we've done or something we've thought, something that has occurred in our heart and in our mind that thinks when we hear that God wants to be with us, it's true for everybody else, but it's not true for me. And that's why I love the story of Hagar. You really can't find someone in a lower position. She's a sex slave. Of anybody that's had an experience that like, um, you know, just the lowest 
position of value you could probably occupy, it's Hagar. And so that's why I love the story of God showing up. And if you, if you know, this is the first time in the Bible that a person gets to name God. And so that's what she does if you look again in verse 13. She says, so she called the name of the Lord, she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. I like how um, the NIV translates it. It's the name she gives him is the God who sees me. And if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. The God who set everything else into motion, who holds history and reality in his hands, he sees you. You're not alone in the wilderness left to die. There is a God who loves you, who created you because he wants to be with you. And that has been true throughout history and it's true today for us in this moment, in 2020, in Arlington, Texas, inside Park Springs Bible Church, if you hear nothing else, hear this. God sees you, and he made you to be with you, and desires a relationship with you, and desires you to know the weight of his love that is shown perfectly in Jesus Christ on the cross. Would you pray with me?